The content presented in this podcast is solely for educational purposes and should not be used as medical advice to diagnose, manage, or treat any health conditions. If you or someone you know has a condition or disease discussed in this podcast, we would encourage you to create and implement a care plan specific to your needs under the supervision of an appropriately licensed healthcare professional. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of experts in the field of fetal medicine and should not be interpreted as the standard of care. Hey, Woommates. Welcome back to the News Womb. This is Aaron Moise. And this is Ken Moise. And in this episode, we're going to be continuing our discussion in part two. We titled this episode, well, Dad titled the episode. Two, one, or none. Why'd you choose that name? Well, because I think when we counsel patients, we they always start out wanting to know if they're going to get two babies to take home from laser. And sometimes they get only one, and sometimes, unfortunately, they get none. And... We started out in the last episode with Dr. Eville talking about his study that he kind of headed up, the randomized controlled trial, which was huge for the field of fetal medicine and establishing laser as a evidence-based treatment option for twin-twin transfusion. And so now we're going to be getting more into the outcomes that came out of that trial and some of the additional discussions and editorials and papers and articles that came out following his trial in his study. Right. And I think you'll hear that we have gotten better since the original trial on what the outcomes are now. There's been papers on learning curves and many more people trained in laser who a few changes in techniques that we'll talk about. But basically, it's more widespread available throughout the world now since uh, Delia first started describing this. I believe in 1990, we said, yeah. Yeah. So here we go. Jumping into part two. All right. Stay tuned. Or just like Listen now. More to follow. <laughs> Let's go into the outcome. So I, I've always, uh, I know Ruben used to talk all the time about this, at least one survival uh, as an outcome variable. And I've always struggled with that with patients because they said, but wait, I don't understand at least one survival. I have two babies. Maybe you could explain to our listeners how that's an endpoint in some of these studies. With those twins, when you consider the outcome with amnioreduction or expected management, it's either one or two intrauterine death, and when it's one without treatment, the second twin very often not only is premature, but it's got everything set to develop severe brain lesions. So not only it's uh, one or two survivor, but it's the notion of intact survival. And what this laser did, although it was quite rough on the placenta, it was really dichorionizing the placenta. So when both babies were born at a reasonable gestational age, because on average you would win another four to six weeks compared to amnioreduction, so not only were they less premature, but they were also sort of dichorionic twins. So you, you, you got rid of the cardiac insufficiency, and if the case was not too advanced, you would also avoid renal insufficiency in the donor. So that was intact survival for those. But then the technique itself, since it was quite close usually to the donor twin, often led to the death of the donor twin or the death 
of the recipient when there was already advanced cardiac insufficiency and myocardiopathy. So in the counseling, after 20 cases, you could already draw figures that was uh, three three possibilities one survivor two survivors or zero and at that time the zero was 25 percent and the 75 percent remaining were cut in two sort of 40 and 40 40 40 20. it was brutal it was rough but it was easy to understand understand and so the at least one survivor was actually an at least one intact survival because you've prevented neurologic yes. sequelae in the baby if you only get one baby even though you started with two i've gotten away from the at least one survival and because everybody quotes much higher numbers obviously with that and say here's i think patients like to hear today two survivors one survivor no survivors and that seems to bring yeah. it home because they're always starting with two babies and they'd like to take home two babies if possible so the the, the article is published in the journal of medicine which is a well-known clinical journal and to why claim everyone accepted it and it really made a big change in the US interest in this past the two centers that were doing it because now we had evidence right and the insurance companies would pay for it because it's an evidence-based procedure which was unique I want to say at the time although I tried to do a randomized trial of septostomy versus amnia reduction there weren't many randomized trials at all in fetal therapy until this trial which was really on the forefront However, there was an editorial. Now, you probably don't know this part of the story, but I was invited to write that editorial right. to your paper. Okay. I gave it to Nick, knowing his interest in Twin Twin. Now, I may have done you a disservice by doing that. <laughs> I was asked by the New England Journal to write the editorial that accompanied, but as you know, Dr. Fiss wrote the editorial, and, and he, people like to come up with catchy lines for these editorials, and he wrote, is this as good as it gets? In other words, a very derogatory, at least the way I interpreted this, and I'm sure you did too, especially in light of the history you just shared with us, sort of a derogatory comment that is this really what we're going to do for Twin Twin? Can we get any better or is it we just have to accept this? But that's not been the case. People have accepted it, and so the editorial really didn't affect long-term, you know, what happened with that. Let's move the time course forward and some a few things have changed. You pointed out that one of the first things that changed was a non-selective method of just walking along mm -hmm. the membrane and whatever crossed the demilitarized zone got buzzed to now a more se selective technique. That was the first change, right? Uh, and I think you, you use that today, don't you? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then there was this sequential selective. Was that something that you, right. what do you think about that? The three variant of the technique the first that was sort of self-imposing was the selective technique, whereby you move away from the membrane and you look at the vascular equator of the placenta. And as you go along and do cases, you become more familiar with this landscape and you try not to over-coagulate vessels. So survival improves sort of naturally with this selective technique. Then the selective technique highlighted that if you were becoming choosy for your coagulation, you may miss some vessels, whether the conditions were not perfect, like with an anterior placenta, or genuinely this vessel was not visible because it was not predominantly used by the blood between the two circulation. But if you coagulate everything around and this vessel is the only one left, then a very tiny vessels can become bigger and drain blood from one twin to the other and that was the the complication of uh, taps postoperative taps twin anemia polycythemia sequence that used to happen with the selective technique in about 
10 to 15 percent of the cases. Although some centers, for different reasons, always claim they never had one. But it's uh, <laughs> another story and another issue of competitiveness, economically driven mostly. But in any case, that was happening. <laughs> so then people said, yeah, selective is good, but uh, we should also pay attention to which vessel we coagulate first and which one we're going to coagulate last. And for this, there is probably an issue here, which is the duration of the procedure. I'm amazed when in, in articles I read, especially Japanese teams, for example, who are very in favor of sequential, because when you look at their operative time, it's over an hour sometimes. Never spent an hour in the uterus. Uh, for me, the coagulation time was and is always 10 minutes. If it's more than 10 minutes, there's obviously something really wrong, and you're not at, at leisure to decide which one you're going to coagulate is because you're in a foggy amniotic fluid and you barely see the placenta so you wash as you go and it's a nightmare but it's exceptional otherwise the coagulation time itself should be 10 minutes there's no reason why you couldn't cross a 20 centimeter wide placenta in an hour so I guess if it takes an hour for you to coagulate vessels, the order of coagulation might be important, but not in 10 minutes. I don't think that changes anything. You don't adhere to the sequential technique now. So that's the sequential. And then the final touch yeah. uh, is called the Solomon technique, yeah. which is a bad name because Solomon <laughs> wanted to kill the two babies, whereby you want to save them. And the Solomon technique is a mixture of what we were doing at first, which was to zap everything along with the mm -hmm. membrane, but by being a bit more picky and just joining the dots of the selective coagulation so that you avoid theoretically and also practically, because the TAPS rate has come down to less than 5% in those using it, you just coagulate those vessels that are too thin to be seen by your eyes when you do the first procedure by just joining the dots. So you dichorionize the placenta and that's the final I think the final useful touch to a technique. I know you mentioned yesterday at your talk, you've noticed at your center that when you adopted technique a higher rate of prom with the solomon, you think that the, we're maybe using too high an energy or why do you think there's more prom if we do a solomon technique? Yeah, initially the group from Leiden reported a higher prom rate from the very beginning. But um, this prom rate for us has been very stable until we moved to the solomon. And there are two explanations. Either you really damage the chorionic plate, but we haven't changed the power of the coagulation we are using. And, and for a long time, especially Kipros has never done anything else but a Solomon, in fact. Mm. He didn't bother to publish that. But when he moved away from the intertwin membranes and also got interested in the equator, he's always done a continuous mm. coagulation. So all these cases have always been like that. So his prom rate, I mean, did not increase because it was doing that. And for us, our prom rate increased, but it increased in parallel with the rate of double survivors. So I think with the Solomon, you increased your double surviving rate. And because you get two twins growing in the same womb, then you can expect more rupture of membranes. Oh. probably, and hopefully wood is underneath, but I, I don't think it's worth doing another randomized trial for that. So do you routinely do Solomon now? Yes, since 1993. Yeah, and do you- 2003, sorry. Have you ever considered turning the power down since you're trying to just zap these small vessels? So use your, I don't know, we use 23, 24 watts on the well, vessel, the thing maybe turn it down. We did those experiments on vessels and placenta uh -huh. in the very soon after we started the technique, it was the early 2000 when we did that. Then in a way, if you use 40 watts, it takes one minute 
to coagulate a vessel that if you're using 28 watts, you need to spend five, six minutes to do exactly the same thing. So if you move down in coagulation and you want to coagulate the vessel, you have to spend more time. So, uh, and the damage to the tissue or the effect to the tissue is the same. Mm -hmm. So what's your setting you typically use? 40 that? watts. Use 40 watts? Never change with a diode laser. Diode, yeah, yeah. If you use a YAG, it's 70 watts. Yeah. Wow. So just a quick question I thought of as you were talking. When you first initially started doing these lasers, it's still an issue to this day, but anterior placentas are every, the bane of everyone's existence to look up at the ceiling and find these vessels. Yeah. So what was doing this surgery on an anterior placenta at the beginning like with the scopes you were using? How, how was that possible? We, we compared the results after, I don't know, 500 cases, anterior and posterior. We had the same survival, but at the time I was a bit rough and I would not hesitate to go through the placenta hmm. because we didn't have bended scopes. Right. So yeah. if you wanted to get to the equator, you had one site of entry and sometimes it, and mostly it was through the placenta when the placenta is anterior. Didn't change much to the results anyway. But with the development of curved scopes, mm -hmm. you can be a bit more delicate and avoid the placenta. Yeah. It's never been a priority. Yeah, and I think there's some work ongoing now with even steerable scopes. I think that's yes. the next thing that's mm -hmm. coming where you can yeah. steer a scope to uh, look up at the interplacenta and make things a whole lot easier because as you as you know it's sort of really hard to get around the edge sometimes. True. So this is not an easy procedure to teach. Why do you think that's true? I've always struggled with, you know, we talked yesterday about training the next generation, but why is this such a difficult you just not it's not a see one do one teach one, right? Why why do you think it's so difficult to teach this to another generation? And is, how do yeah. you teach the vessel types? Because I still don't know the vessel types. It's a C20 do 50 <laughs> teach one. <laughs> there, there you go. Uh, no, it, it's not a difficult procedure. Not difficulty, but the only strategic thing is where you enter. Mm -hmm. If you enter at the wrong place, you're lost and that's the end of it. Right. So the most important thing is where to enter. And there are two useful tips here. One is to try and follow at least the direction of a virtual line joining the two cords. Sometimes the cords are very close, so this doesn't work. But if they are distant enough, that's usually the direction, one. And two, when this Donna twin gets caught at low tide, usually <laughs> it is lying parallel to the vascular equator. So if you can combine those two directions, you get a mixture between being perpendicular to the long axis of the Donna twin and roughly along the line joining the two cords, which by the way is absolutely critical to know where the cord insertions are. Because in the ideal, and the only situation that should be the case for operating these twins, you have one cord behind you and one cord in front of you. If every single time you have to try and see where one cord is, it's going to be 50 minutes right. to coagulate five vessels. You reorient yourself every yeah. time. So you, you need to be confident that what is coming from behind is coming really from one cord that you've located precisely, and what is coming towards you is coming from the other cord. That makes the procedure simple, even simplistic, because then there is no surgical talent there. You just zap the vessel. So the entry point is the key, one. Then you see the equator, and you know which vessel is belonging to which twin. So whenever they get any close, 
And that's uh, Benyeshka's contribution, major contribution to the field. When they are, they can be nose-to-nose, -nose, they can be in parallel, they can also be two or three of them. And if there is one that seems to never end, that means it's an artery-to-artery -artery anastomosis, and that's it. And then you just coagulate all those that communicate. That's why you'd be such a good teacher of this. It was so simple, right? <laughs> I would say that even after doing, I don't know how many you've done, I've done, there's always that one case that just throws you a curveball and there's a vessel coming around the far side oh, of the yes. membrane. Or, yes. And I think that's, when I've thought about this, it's, you know, we do cesareans the same way, we do hysterectomies the same way. It's very rote. This throws you curveballs all the time. The vessels are always different. It's a fingerprint, right? Each placenta is unique. It could be five vessels, it could be 14 vessels. And, you know, you could have these weird vessels or vessels disappearing under the membrane and you can't see if there's an anastomosis, so you take it blindly sometime. Yep. It's, um, it's a, it can be challenging. Well, one of the things we've always struggled with is when to do this. I mean, our SMFM document says stage two and above, stage two to four. A lot of us have struggled with stage one. And uh, to try to get some of those answers, you were the senior author on a paper recently published a year or so ago on stage one twin twin. And should we wait or should we go ahead to laser? And um, you all found that 40%, I think, of the patients stayed at stage one and never got worse. And they did not need the risk of putting a scope in with the risk of prematurity, et cetera. So that study got stopped a little early, as you mentioned earlier, equipoise might have been an issue, patients may have been an issue, and you didn't reach the full complement of patients, but there was still some very good data in there. I think you addressed this yesterday in your talk, but what do you do now with stage one? How do you counsel, based on your data in the study, how do you counsel the patient with stage one? Let's make it easier. Her cervix is okay, and her fluid maybe is just at the border of 10 or 12. She's not symptomatic in the larger sac, how, and she's stage one. How do you talk to your patient about laser or not? Right. Just a word on the on the trial. The thing is, um, stage one is not a condition, and seeing a bladder in half of the cases. Now we know it's about half. In half of the cases, is just stagnant urine. There's no urine production, and that is difficult to transform into a, a diagnostic tool in most centers. Same with the cardiac function. Cardiac function can be altered, especially in the recipient with normal peripheral Doppler, but that requires expertise to. Um, make that as a diagnosis. So for this trial, we decided to use the Quintero staging system, very simple. And then the literature was very controversial and each meta new meta-analysis would contradict the previous one. So because there is a strong belief in meta-analysis and systematic review, which I never understood why, because <laughs> it's, it's nicer to get it wrong when you're many, probably, good company, <laughs> then you had patients presenting for the trial who already had been counseled one way or another. Equipoise is genuine uncertainty. Well, it's got nothing to do with equipoise here. Yeah. It's got to a genuine ignorance, but ignored ignorance. So, yeah, so we had to stop. But then now it's easy because you can tell this lady there is a one in two chance that you don't need to be operated, which means that there is one in two chance that you need to be operated. How do those two sentences resonate with you? And some would say, I'm happy not to do anything at first. But is that more dangerous if then you have to operate on me next week or in two weeks? And then you can confidently say, no, if I operate on you today or next week, it doesn't make any difference. And then there's no dilemma. Mm -hmm. You're always one or the other. One lady would say, fine, I'll see you next week. 
And the other one say, no, I don't want to take that risk. I'd rather lose everything but get rid of the problem. And then you operate her on the spot. So I think in that way, the failure of this trial was a success. And quick question, something that we run into, at least at our center, we very rarely actually do lasers on patients located in Austin, Texas. Mm -hmm. They come from far and wide. Yeah. And so travel is an issue. And there is a degree of counseling with our patients of, we know you can't can't probably come back if you develop it and you may be on the border or like, you know, right at that probably stage one, maybe progress to stage two, we're not really sure, but they can't afford to come back if they develop stage two. What do you do with those yeah, patients? Do you see this those? is contingency that she will assimilate in her answer. Mm-hmm. If she's indeed five hours away from the laser center and it was difficult for her to come, she will say, well, yeah, I'd rather have it now because I'm not sure that'd be easy for me to come back. That's fine. That's one good reason that stands. But sometimes she's followed by someone who knows exactly what to look for, made the diagnosis of stage one she's confident and this person who's scanning is confident into seeing the evolution and even for a five-hour trip she might prefer to go back because you're going to see her only weekly anyway and she will be seen weekly nearby where she lives yeah well and i think you made a good point there's stage one and there's stage one i think all of us have seen stage one coming from an outside physician and we look at the heart and there's gross cardiomegaly going on with hypertrophy and regurge and the baby just looks, the heart looks very bad and you go, this is stage one with cardiac findings when we write it out and we're going to offer you a laser because this heart's not looking good. You make a really valid point about the bladder, the whole bladder thing for me. I I mean, I did studies when I was a fellow on urine output in fetuses on endomethacin and the effects of indocin and watching bladders in normal fetuses cycle is you got to keep up with them. I mean, they cycle quite every every 10 minutes they're cycling. And so we don't do that. We say yes, no, right? So this, yep. we're simplistic in a lot of things we do in fetal medicine. We have these dichotomous variables, the bladder's present or not, the liver's up or down. And I've always thought we should have a continuum of some of these parameters to help us. Uh, but you're right. If you don't, if you watch the bladder, it just stays the same. It doesn't move. So the baby's not urinating. It's just filled its bladder to that point. What do you do though in, let's, let's change a, a little bit in the counseling, and now the patient has a MVP of 14 and is having symptoms. Either she's having contractions or discomfort or maybe her cervix is 20 millimeters. Does that change your counseling in that stage one patient with these unique findings? Let's say she lives in your city, but she has this poly that's symptomatic or she's got a short cervix. So these symptomatic women were not part of the trial. And for us, it's always been an indication to operate. I know that in this country, initially, a short cervix was a contraindication to laser. But uh, it is an indication for us, so um, we just operate on the spot. And if the cervix is less than 20 millimeter, basically close to uh, the fifth centile or less than 15 millimeter, we now uh, insert a pessary. We used to put a stitch then we moved to a pessary. And initially, we published a very small study but showed a big difference even in survival for those cases that had a stitch on these very, very short services. After that, again, the disease of uh, systematic reviews, you know, adding apples and oranges, showed absolutely no effect, but that would be surprising that it did because when you use so 
heterogeneous population by the definition of the severity of the disease, the technique used, the operating time, and so on and so forth. You can't have something homogeneous, so uh, I didn't show anything. But um, we've mixed our results. We joined Peralta's results, and Fabio is a great surgeon. He's been on this for many, many, many years, and um, he has had the same attitude as we had. And we combine our results uh, using the Solomon technique in both centers and putting a pessary or a stitch depending on who is operating on this. And we, um, we can see exactly the same benefits. So a fellow is writing that up now, but I think it's, uh, it's useful. If you don't mind me asking, what pessary do you use? Arabian pessary. Arabian pessary, yeah. yeah. Which the FDA won't let us use that in the States. Oh, right. Okay. I don't know why. There was a lot of interest in using it, and people did start using it, and then it was pulled off, and I'm not sure where they are with that. So you already entered our story about the short cervix. I think it's, it is, as you know, a prognostic issue for these patients, and so we all are frustrated. And I think, I think it's a different pathophysiology than the incompetent cervix, right? Oh, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's a totally different game. Yeah. So I think that pretty wraps up our questions. Do you have questions? Anything you can think of? I had one, and I forgot it. Oh, okay. <laughs> that happens a lot when we record. <laughs> well, Eve, I want to thank you so much for spending some yes, time with you. us this morning. And also want to thank you for the trials you've done. I always think that people who make major contributions like your group has uh, in this area has helped all of us who maybe are at a small center. We can't do randomization quite as well. We don't have the European attitude that you all have sometimes in socialistic healthcare systems. You know, they seek what they want in the United States. And so it's difficult to do these trials. They help us with evidence to decide what to do with our patients. And uh, hats off to you and your, your group for doing that and to Kipros for kind of pushing it and to D'Elia for starting this whole thing. And, um, and Benishka. Yeah, and for sure. You know, I think it saved countless babies and will save countless babies around the world. I mean, people in China do this. And people in Japan do this. I mean, it's permeated the entire world in the world of fetal medicine and new things are coming. But thanks a lot for your time today. And um, yeah, we'll you. let you know when we get this live so you can listen yes, to yourself. Yes, thank you. It was my pleasure. The word. Thanks, thanks for the invitation and the initiative. Is uh, I'm very curious to listen to all of the yep. others. Yes. Yep. Yep. Uh, we have 20 out right now. Right. I released the 20th one on Monday. Brilliant. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah. I know. He said we have five or six. I'm like, we have 20. <laughs> No, but she's working pretty hard at it. She's, I'm the producer, she's the editor. So it's kind of, okay. yeah. yeah. Well, you want to do a sign off? Yeah. Well, Lumates, that wraps us up. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you, Dr. Ville, for joining us. We really appreciate it. This is Aaron Moise signing off. And this is Ken Moise. More to follow. Great. Perfect. Thank you. Oh, 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 oh.